Romans chapter 12. And while they're going, let me just encourage you again to take note of several announcements in the bulletin, including uh, the fact that we have some college bags that are over there in the lobby entryway towards uh, the chapel wing on the Sunday School area. And those are for our college and career, but in particular as we think about our college students and many of them coming from out of town, and some of them will start to be back with us next Sunday, others in the week following. So we have an opportunity to be a blessing to them, many of them in dorms away from home. And uh, so you'll see they're kind of grouped with boys and girls, and that's because there's a good number of them. And if you want to contribute to all, you're welcome to do that. If you want to pick just the boys, you can do that, or just the girls, you can do that as well. So maybe uh, maybe there's something unique to boys or girls there. And so we just want you to be aware of that. And then let me also mention that Tonight at 5 o'clock, our choir will resume choir practice as we get an opportunity to have them minister to us in our services, and so that'll resume this evening. A highly credible church historian uh, recently summarized several studies of the follow-up of major evangelistic crusades, and he wrote this. He said, when careful studies have been undertaken, the most commonly agreed range, he said, is 2 to 4 percent. He added, that is between 2 to 4 percent of those who make a profession of faith at such meetings, at evangelistic crusades, are actually persevering in the faith five years later, as measured by such criteria as attendance at church, regular Bible reading, and things of that nature. Earlier this week, a pastor that I don't know, but whose writings have been an encouragement to me, and he ministers as we do in the Bible Belt, he said that one of my greatest concerns today is our increasing inability to define who is and who is not a Christian. And I thought of those comments and others like them as I prepared to turn our attention to this familiar text of Romans 12, 1 and 2. We introduced that on New Year's Eve, and we're going to be spending our time during this month of January in this text. And if you will just go right to the end of verse number 2 here in Romans chapter 12, you will see this phrase, that ye may prove... If you're there, go ahead and and just follow along that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There is a proving process whereby you can be certain that in this year of 2020, you are living in the center of God's will for your life. The fact that God spells it out here tells us that He doesn't intend his will to be hard to find. He wants us to be able to live in the center of his will. And there is a proving process for that. We're going to be exploring that together over these next several weeks. But when you back up at the start of verse 1 here in Romans chapter 12, the apostle Paul assumes something about anyone who would experience this reality of living in the center of his will... And what he assumes is in that first phrase, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. 
What, what he is uh, assuming is that you and I are brethren. That, that we have received the mercies of God to us in Christ. And if I use some expressions that, that he uses all the way back in chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, but in Romans chapter 1, he assumes that we have been saved by faith in the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. So he's assuming that this gospel that he's declared for 11 chapters and said must be received by faith, and, and by faith in the gospel there is salvation in Jesus Christ, he's assuming that we are the recipients of that. But the comments I've cited from others this morning are expressing concern that not everyone that has made a profession of faith actually possesses a saving faith. In fact, according to these studies, 2 to 4% of those professing faith at these big evangelistic crusades actually end up showing some vital signs, signs of real spiritual life. But you know, it is not just the concerns of contemporary ministers today. It's not just men of our day that are raising the concerns. James, the Lord's brother, actually wrote back in James chapter 2 and verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and have not works? And then he asked provocatively, can faith save him? And he's talking about a, a specific kind of faith. Can the faith that is in word only, can a kind of faith that where there's no evidence as, as you look at the life of somebody being made a new creature in Christ, can, can a faith that is in word only save? And what James goes on to declare in that, in that passage on three different occasions is that a faith without evidence is an empty profession. In fact, he refers to it as dead. It is certainly not saving. And so this morning, really as we kind of launch into this mini-series looking at, at these steps to proving the will of God, we want to explore together the characteristics of a saving faith. The scripture does discriminate about that, marks them off. And, and we're going to be turning a great deal this morning. And we're going to start by just turning back a few pages here in the book of Romans to chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, if you'll just flip back there. And we're going to start by just seeing one description of faith itself. What is faith? How does the Bible even define that? We could turn to several passages, but this one is, is a very helpful one. Romans chapter 4, and we're going to come down to verses 20 and 21. This is referring to Abraham, and it says about Abraham in Romans 4 verse 20 that he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And now we have this additional description. What would it be to be strong in faith? Verse 21 being fully persuaded that what God had promised, God was able also to perform. So, so this is what faith is. Faith is acting with full persuasion that God's words are trustworthy. It, it's being persuaded. What God says, God is able to perform. I can trust whatever God has said. 
Faith isn't denial. It's not doubt. It's not even, you know, strong wishing or really hoping. But faith is acting with assurance that what God says he will do, uh, he will do. He does what he says. I'm persuaded of that. That's what faith is. Now, with that in mind, I want to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians. And we're going to go all the way uh, to the next to last chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we want to see in 1 Corinthians 15 and the first several verses, we want to see the specific content that a saving faith is fully persuaded of. And we're going to begin reading in verse number 1 and, and read right down through verse 4. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also you are, you see our word there, saved. We're talking about a saving faith. What saves? By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now you can see fairly easy from these verses that the specific content of a saving faith, if you want to summarize it, it involves what the Bible declares about the person and work of Jesus Christ. So a, a saving faith is fully persuaded, first of all, that the scripture alone reveals the way of salvation. Salvation is not found in the doctrines of any man or his followers. And salvation is not found in the doctrines of the quote-unquote church. Romans 10 and verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Saving faith is found in the scripture. The gospel is found in the scripture. A saving faith is, is, is further fully persuaded from this text that Jesus is the Christ. Christ died for our sins. Jesus is the eternal God that came down from heaven and became man so that he could be the savior of men. He's God's anointed one, God's chosen one. And a saving faith is fully persuaded that all other than Christ are sinners who deserve to die separated from God forever because of our sins. Christ died for our what? For our sins. We're sinners, and the penalty for sin is death, and he took that penalty on him. And, and saving faith is fully persuaded that the method of Christ providing for man's salvation was his own sacrificial death as he took on himself all of our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, Peter says. So saving faith is fully persuaded that he really died and was really buried in verse 4. And he bodily rose from the grave on the third day after his death. <clears throat> and these things summarize the central core, if you will, of the content of a saving faith. So we try to pull together these threads we've looked at to this point, a saving faith is, is displayed by an unreserved, exclusive trust 
in the facts that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And, and we've added these adjectives. It's, it's unreserved. It's unreserved because it isn't doubt. It isn't denial. It isn't even just really hoping. It is exclusive, unreserved, exclusive trust. It's exclusive because it isn't Jesus and baptism. It isn't Jesus and confirmation, the mass, or anything else. It is Jesus alone. He alone died for our sins, paying the only penalty that could be paid. Saving faith is displayed in an unreserved, exclusive trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now with that foundation laid, turn to Acts chapter 20. And we're turning here because the Bible further declares that when a man acts with this full persuasion of the trustworthiness of these facts, cries out to God to save him, there are some accompanying dynamics that take place in the inner man of the one who turns to Christ. And, and one of those movements in the inner man is described by this biblical term, repentance. And here in verse 21, Acts 20, and verse 21, Paul is summarizing his teaching and preaching ministry. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about uh, churched people like the Jews of that day, or you're talking about unchurched people like the Gentiles of that day, the Greeks. It's the same thing. Look at verse 21. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you can see Paul is saying that his missionary work and his evangelism, he was calling on men to repent and believe. Repentance is not something in addition to saving faith. It is actually a characteristic of that faith. And repentance and faith go hand in hand. And we, I think about a year ago, had a Wednesday night a shorter sermon, a shorter segment series on the nature of a saving faith. And we saw then that sometimes the Bible just uses the word, the word repentance to describe a repentant faith. And, and sometimes... The Bible just uses the word faith to describe a believing repentance. And sometimes they're, they're just interchangeable. They can be that because they go hand in hand. Even where the word isn't used, you can't have a saving faith that is void of repentance. It goes hand in hand. Now, with that in mind, what, what does repentance mean? And, of course, we could explore the scripture in depth. But, but the word... The Greek word translated repentance is the word metanoia, and you don't need to know the word at all, except in this case it helps us to get a little bit. <clears throat> Meta is after, and nous is mind. So if you did it in that order, you'd say after mind. But we would say today something like upon further reflection. All right? That's the base of the word. The word means that you actually, upon further reflection, you change your mind. And when you change your mind, it is not simply an intellectual matter. 
When you change your mind, your, your intellect does assess the situation. I don't know if any of you that were buying presents for somebody else took them back before you ever gave them to them. All right, you bought something, but the longer you had it, the more you started thinking, that's not the right gift. I'm going to take that back and get something else. But probably all of us, at least our families, have probably returned some gift or we intend to return some gift. It was the wrong size, it was the wrong whatever. Or maybe it was just, it was bad taste. I don't want to tell the people that gave it to me, but I'm, I'm taking that back and getting something else. You, you upon further reflection, you, you assess the situation And when you start to talk about repentance, there is not only the intellect assessing, but there is an emotion of regret regarding where I'm at. And there is a resolve upon a new course of action. In saving faith, what a man assesses is that living my life, I may have been living my life moral, church-going, Christian culture, but I know I've been living in charge of my own life. I've been living my life my way within whatever boundaries. And he assesses that as rebellion against God and is sorry for that self-will and resolves to lay down his arms of rebellion and cries out to God to save him from his sin, fully persuaded that what God has promised in Christ he will perform. And when a man cries out to God with this repentant faith, the scripture in several places refers to it as calling on the Lord. And I want to have you turn to Romans chapter 10, where we observe one of those occasions. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says this, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be what? Thou shalt be saved. You can see we're not just using the word saved as something to preach today. What is a saving faith? What accompanies a saving believing? And one of the things that accompanies it, straightforward, verse number 9, is a confession with your mouth, O Lord Jesus. And that phrase speaks of confessing that Jesus, which is his personal name, Jesus of Nazareth, that Jesus is Lord, which is an expression of his position. Now you can chase down this word in the Bible and you'll find that that same word Lord refers to, in one case, the owners of a certain colt. Talking about a donkey. The owners of a donkey. Um, It refers to a father with authority over his children. Actually refers to a husband with authority over his wife. It refers to a king with authority over his subjects. An owner, a father, a husband, a king. It refers to someone in a position of leadership and even authority. When a man confesses that Jesus is Lord, 
He is testifying to his intention to be a loyal subject, a submitted, if you will, subject of Jesus Christ. And like repentance, this should not be treated as if it's something in addition to saving faith. It's just inherent in the expression of that faith. There is obviously no true repentance if there is no surrender because repentance involves acknowledging my sin, being sorry for for it, and, and resolving to seek Christ for deliverance from it. And because the fundamental sin issue is self-autonomy. And I, I may need to just, to just pause there. The Bible says that in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 3, that sin is the transgression of the law. What, what is sin? Well, think about, think about the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So, I mean, we could walk right through all of them. Anytime anyone uses God's name in any kind of flippant, vain, common manner, it is sin. Honor your father and mother. Any form of disobedience to God's ordained leadership. Not hearing them, not submitting to what I hear, or submitting to what I hear, but doing it with an awful attitude in my heart. Every last time it's sin. Thou shalt not commit adultery, and that includes everything under the umbrella that leads up to it. Thou shalt not bear false witness. The average American lies 16 times a day, according to studies, and every last one of them are sin. And whoever keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point, he is guilty of all. We are guilty for every last sin, but it is not sins you know, in plural, in the multitude that ultimately we we repent of. All of those sins are the expression of the fundamental sin. The fundamental sin is this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to what? We've turned everyone to his own way. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. And look, we express our, we, we sin in all different kinds of fashions. But all those sins are an expression of, I want to live my life my way. I want to be in control. And sometimes people do it by carving out their own religious experience, moral, self-righteous, merit-earning religious experience. Sometimes people do it. In the, in the profligate lifestyle of the prodigal son. But the fundamental issue is living my life my way. Self-autonomy. And listen, I haven't really repented of that until I have yielded my way to the Lord's way. And there's no faith where there's no surrender to his position. The Philippian jailer said to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what do I do to be, what? What do I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the who? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, the Lord, the Savior. A saving faith takes him for all that he is. And in saving faith, a man comes to grips with the fact that he's a sinner that deserves to perish eternally. And he sorrows over his rebellion and 
turns away from living my life my way and declares his intention to be a loyal subject of Christ. And he's fully persuaded that everything God's promised to him in Christ, he will perform. And then I want to have us turn to Hebrews chapter 3 as we continue to explore these characteristics of this saving believing. Another characteristic of, of this faith is that it is no momentary or temporary sensation. I'm, I'm having us go to Hebrews 3. We're going to see a couple of references. But when we were in 1 Corinthians 15, you remember that Paul said that you are saved by faith in the gospel? I don't know if you remember, we read verses 1 and 2 before we got to the content. Christ died for our sins according to scriptures, was buried, rose again. But he said this, if you keep, remember this? He said, you are saved by faith if you keep in memory what I, have, what, what I have preached. And you have not believed in vain. Again, he's opening up the very possibility that a temporary faith would be a vain faith. Something that is momentary only is not the saving variety, if you will. Now look at Hebrews 3 and verse 14. Notice what he says here. Hebrews 3 and verse 14 for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Now, brethren, be clear about this. This is not talking about an unbroken succession of good works. This is not talking about the fact that I keep doing and doing and doing. This is talking about what? This is talking about I continue to cling to Christ. I mean, all, all, all my trust continues to be in him and him alone. We hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast in the end. Look over at chapter 10. There's other places we could see this in Hebrews. But Hebrews chapter 10, and come all the way down to the end of that chapter, verses 38 and 39. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38 now the just shall live by faith. I mean, that's how you enter into the Christian life. Saved, born again, receive eternal life by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto what? Unto perdition. But of them that believe to the saving of the soul. That is, they continue saving faith perseveres. And it perseveres not by the strength of the believer, but it perseveres by the grace of God. True believers, according to 1 Peter 1, 5, are kept by the power of God through faith. That This full persuasion regarding what God has promised in Christ who moves a man to trust in those promises, to repent of his sin, to confess loyal subjection, subjection, it continues for a lifetime by the grace of God. This isn't something you, you do when you're nine and you don't live for God for decades, but at least what you did when you were nine gets you into heaven. The Bible nowhere presents that as even a possible category of a saving faith. This is something that continues. And all of these, these descriptions of the nature of a saving faith are necessary characteristics of that faith. Apart from these realities... 
existing in the profession, the profession is of a different kind than a saving kind. And then there is one final characteristic of a saving faith that we're going to consider. And this one is true in its own right because the scripture declares it. And it's a characteristic that that must not be neglected because it also serves as, as a caution and even a correction against the wrong focus. And, and to underscore it, I, I am pausing and I do want to underscore it. And I'm, I want to relate some drama that, that unfolded in the lives of John and Charles Wesley. I would think those names are fairly familiar to us. But those, those brothers were members of what was called in that day Oxford's Holy Club. They were a group of seminary students who practiced religion, uh, rigid religious disciplines. And in those days, they, they thought that salvation was going to be gained. They were all studying to be Anglican priests. And they thought that salvation was going to be gained by being uh, diligent in their effort and hard work. They actually fasted a couple days a week. They, they came from backgrounds that had wealth, relative wealth, and they were giving away. They actually founded some, um, some orphanages for the children of prisoners. And, and really, on and on, their endeavors went. But when all those efforts did not bring them peace, but actually contributed to greater anxiety, and, and, and they were so disciplined, but they were not finding peace, and some of them were on the verge of an attempted suicide because they were under the weight of that. And when they, were, when they were in that kind of condition, they came into contact with some Moravians who repeatedly stressed to them that the peace they were seeking was not going to be found in their own endeavors. It would have to be found in faith alone. And, and we've been making that emphasis. Then God used the counsel of the Moravians to bring them to the end of confidence in themselves and their works, but there was still another major hurdle to overcome. And, and that hurdle, I think, is best described by Arnold Dallimore. He has a two-volume biography of George Whitfield, a great evangelist who was also a member of the Holy Club. And, and after analyzing journals of, of John and Charles from that season of their life, he said that under Bowler's instruction, and, and Peter Bowler uh, was a prominent Moravian teacher, he said under, under Bowler's instruction, they had forsaken their trust in personal endeavors and works. But faith had become a new kind of endeavor that they substituted for their former endeavors and a work which took the place of their former good works. They still had learned nothing of receiving Christ in the fullness of his person, but were concerned about faith itself and what measure of it might be expected for salvation. All right, and I know that when I read something extensive without words up here in this setting, I know it's hard to follow all that, but, but what he's expressing is that they had moved from trusting in their works. And anyone who trusts in their works, anyone who's trying to be good enough, we've said this repeatedly, anyone who's trying to be good enough never knows when good enough is actually what? Is actually good enough. I mean, I'm hoping, I'm really trying, I'm trying to get there. That's where they had been, and they realized, I'm never going to be good enough, so can't trust in that. But they had shifted from trying to trust in their works to actually trusting in their faith. It was like faith in faith. And that's the caution that I want to raise this morning. 
is we've been occupied with the nature of a saving faith. The Bible is. But it will actually be to our harm if we end up focused on the faith and not on the object of the faith, which is Jesus Christ. And, and with that in mind, I want to add this final characteristic, this, this final quality of the nature of saving faith. And, and people have expressed it in different ways. I'm expressing it this way because of several texts that, that really impacted me. But, but it is this, I'm, I'm saying it this way, is that it is an affectionate embracing of Jesus Christ. Saving faith involves an affectionate embracing of Jesus Christ. So you just think about verses that we've heard for many years. John 1.12 says, As many as have received him, to them gave he power, the right, the authority, the privilege of being called the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So, so salvation is a matter of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You, you, you are united to him. You believe on, you believe into him. You're depending on him and trusting him. Sometimes we say, I received the Lord when such and such took place. And it really is that. You, you actually obey him as Lord and you trust and obey him because... You love him. And this is that affectionate embracing of Jesus. Think about this. John 8 and verse 42. Jesus said unto his audience, If God were your father, you would love me. If God is really your heavenly father, then you love Jesus Christ. I I heard a preacher, and actually he's a missionary, and I think the world of him, but when he was a young man... He said, I got saved when I was such and such age. And then he said something that, when I heard it, it was like six or seven years later. But I didn't love Jesus until six years later. And I just want to say, I'm sure he was well-intentioned, but he was wrong. (laughs) No man gets saved without loving Jesus. If God is your Father, you would love me. Or, 1 Corinthians 16, 22 says, If any man love not our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Or, Ephesians 6 and verse 24, Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Saving faith is, I take Jesus, and I take him because I love him. And when you explore this, brethren, and, and you really are looking, do, do I have the, the qualities, the marks, the characteristics of a saving faith? Well, I would just ask this. When, when you do sin against God now, even as a believer, and you've been a believer for many years, I, I can probe this with true believers and say, listen, isn't your greatest grief, and, and there might be multiple levels of grief over your sin. I mean, that's the consequences to me, it's the consequences to others, it's my failure to represent God. All of that hurts and is sad and grieving. But the reality is, when it gets right down to it, if you're a believer, you know that the greatest grief you have is the grief that you have brought to your relationship with the one you love. 
And I will say to you, even your grief on that personal level does reveal love, however weak that love may be. It may need to grow, but that was the case with Peter. Do you remember Peter after his denial of the Lord? He's in the courtyard of the high priest, and Peter's eyes met the Lord, and it says that after their eyes met, Peter went out and wept bitterly. And his broken heart over such a clear-cut personal denial did reveal love. And I'm not just highlighting that because it fits with the preaching here. I'm highlighting it because several days later, after the resurrection, that's what the Lord probed with Peter. Remember, the Lord meets Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Peter had denied the Lord three times, and three times the Lord says to Peter, Peter, do you what? Do you love me? Peter had boasted, though all men might deny you, I never will. As if somehow he's better than all these other men. Peter, you, you boasted great things and you have failed miserably. Now I want to ask you, do you even really love me? And J.C. Ryle commenting on that scene said, We know much and we give much and we go through much and we make much show in our religion. And you can yet be dead before God and from want of love go down to the pit. Do we love Christ? That's our great question. Without it, there's no vitality to our Christianity. We're no better than painted wax figures, lifeless stuffed beasts in a museum, sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. There's no life or there's no love, knowledge, orthodoxy, correct views, faithfulness to spiritual disciplines, a respectable moral life. All these do not make up a true Christian. What makes up a true Christian is that they love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. All believers love him. And, brethren, even when they know and, and, and are grieved, knowing that there is good reason for some other man, even the Lord himself, to question their love. That's the way Peter was. And, and there's probably times where you have been there, where you, you know. If somebody else questions my love, for the Lord, I deserve it. In fact, I, I wouldn't be upset with the Lord if he questioned my love for him. And, and the Lord questioned Peter after Peter had flagrantly denied. And, and Peter just had to say, Lord, you know everything. And you know I what? Peter could actually say, Lord, you know everything, and you know I love you. You know how much my love has been revealed to be far less than it ought to be. But, Lord, you know I love you. And Peter's love did grow. It grew to the point that the sincerity of that was demonstrated before all. According to traditional reports, as you know, from the first century, Peter was crucified for his unbending testimony to Christ, and he didn't feel he was worthy to die the same death as his Lord, and so he asked to be crucified upside down. Verse 
brethren, a, a characteristic quality of a saving faith is that it affectionately embraces Christ. And so I ask, do you trust him? That's what faith is. Do you obey him? It involves repentance and submission. Do you serve him because you love him? I don't mean to be ugly at all or condescending to anybody, but, but I would ask, or is your profession motivated by a desire to fit in with your family? Was it just the step that made the most sense in light of the facts? I mean, I'm, there's a God. I, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm going to earn my way. I'm certainly not trusting in Buddha or Muhammad or anybody else. I mean, this makes the most sense in light of the facts. Is it possible somebody said, well, I certainly don't want to go to hell, and heaven sounds like a far better option. Is it possible that somebody's been kind of fairly casually trusting in your profession of faith? I just ask you again, is Jesus Christ the primary object of your loving affection? Do you have a relationship with him? We were at a wedding on Friday night, and we were sitting in the back row before an aisle, and Priscilla was sitting on the aisle. And when the bride came down, I was actually watching to see if the bride was going to look at Priscilla or anybody else in our family and she wasn't and so I looked to see if she was looking at anybody else in the crowd and I don't know what I was thinking because after a while of looking to see if Audra was going to look at anybody else I realized Audra was looking one place you know where she was looking she was looking at her groom that's the one she was looking at. And I thought again of Samuel Rutherford's wonderful hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. And he writes, The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear, dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze on glory, but on my king of grace. Not on the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hands. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. There is something of that, at least in measure, in the life of every true Christian. This saving faith, trust him exclusively, has repented and surrendered to his right to rule and will continue to cling to him and will do all of that because he loves him. Do you love him this morning? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and just want to give opportunity, really, for you to ask where needs